All right, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Resource Insider Podcast, Quarantined Edition. We're still on day five. Uh, you can, some of you can see behind me my uh, prison chart there, where I'm counting away the days for how long I'm trapped in my feeling godforsaken department apartment rather. Um, today, or I guess later today, we have a guest. Uh, who's a bit different than pretty much everybody else we've been talking to. We've spoken to a lot of people in the mining world, uh, CEOs, investors, etc. Today we're talking to a gentleman named Brent Johnson. And Brent is not purely mining focused. He runs a wealth management firm called Santiago Capital. He's based out of the Western United States. And he is very macro focused and currency focused. But what makes Brent particularly interesting is at one point he ran a gold fund and he chose to shut that down because he felt like his time and money were better allocated to other resources. So we're going to get into all that today. So ramble over without further ado. Let me please introduce Brent Johnson. Brent, thanks for uh, taking a few minutes out of your afternoon to chat. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here and looking forward to talking to you and uh, your listeners. So I guess for those people who've not or aren't familiar with your work or who haven't seen you talk before, can you give us the 30,000 foot view of who you are and what you're focused on today? Sure. Yeah. So uh, I live in San Francisco. I've been in the wealth management business, for lack of a better word, for over 20 years now. And I was with a big firm called Credit Suisse for a number of years. Uh, in the midst of the global financial crisis, I had a, uh, let's just call it a, a difference of opinion uh, with my uh, superiors on whether I was a salesman for the firm or a fiduciary for my clients. And coming out of that, uh, I left Credit Suisse and joined an independent wealth management firm in San Francisco. Uh, also set up Santiago Capital a few years later to do some precious metals investing, some uh, other alternative investments as well as just some general advisory work uh, in the uh, alternative asset space. Um, and then in, um, you know, I ran a gold fund. I had a gold fund from 2012 to 2018. Uh, I shut that at the end of 2018 for a couple reasons. And, and I'll tell everybody, the reason I opened it in the first place was that I thought that we were at the beginning of a multi-year bull market in gold. And I think, I thought then, and I still think today that gold should be a part of every person's uh, portfolio. I'm a huge believer in owning gold. Uh, but I was running it through a fund structure. And in a fund structure, there's a number of costs and um, inefficiencies uh, that are kind of overcome in a bull market, but are very difficult to overcome in a, in a long lasting bear market. And based on everything I was seeing in the market at the time, I felt it was more efficient and cheaper for my clients to own gold through a non-fund structure, at least the structure that I had set up. And so, and I didn't think that we were going to have a bull market in mining shares yet. And I did not want to be invested in the mining shares yet. So I shut the, it, I'll tell you, it was the hardest decision I ever had to make in my life. Uh, I didn't really want to do it, but I just thought it was the right thing to do for clients. So we shut the fund down. You know, clients, I still help clients own gold through other means rather than my fund. I still think it's important to own gold. Uh, but based on what I see coming down uh, the pike over the next couple of years, I think it's incredibly important to own gold. But that doesn't mean I think it's going to pay off right away. And I think there's enormous opportunities 
in the non-gold part of your portfolio to protect yourself against what's coming and also profit from what's coming. Uh, so that's kind of uh, me in a nutshell. You know, I, when, we, when we shut down the gold fund, we did raise another fund in which we uh, play a number of fiat currencies against each other and in which we uh, play the knock-on effects of what I believe will be a rapidly appreciating U.S. dollar. And I think that has implications for every financial market in the world. And so that's kind of been my particular focus over the last couple of years. Okay, great. So I'd like to start chatting uh, about what you think is coming. So you mentioned being prepared for what's coming next. So if we could start talking about what you see yeah. happening over the next, I mean, things are moving so rapidly right now, so I don't even know the right timeline to talk about, but let's just say the next six months to a year. Um, and then what's, what, what, what you see company coming and then what steps you're taking and you're advising investors to take to, to capitalize on that and to protect themselves. Yeah. So my, my thesis really began uh, after doing a very deep dive on the dollar and currency markets back in 2016. And it kind of developed from there. And essentially what I think is that we are moving, well, for the last couple of years, I've been saying that we're moving into a currency crisis. And I think what we've seen in just the last month is that we are now in the beginning stages of it. We're no longer moving towards it. We're in it but I still think we're in the early stages of it. Uh, essentially, the big issue, uh, without going into too much detail, I'm happy to go into more detail, but from a very big picture issue, just to keep it very simple, there is a supply and demand mismatch in the dollar, the US dollar. And that, that's important, not just for the United States, but for the entire world, because the entire world runs on dollars. Funded um, states. Um, so the, the the point I'm making is that while it's the U.S. dollar that's the issue, this is not just a U.S. issue. Um, part of the reason is there's, despite many opinions, uh, particularly in the gold world, that the dollar is on its last days and that the dollar is going to lose its value and that everybody hates the dollar. All of that may be true, but the fact of the matter is, is right now today. Everybody needs dollars to operate. They may hate it. They may not like it, but they need it. And that's, that's why you've seen these huge margin calls over the last couple weeks. That's why you've seen asset prices, including gold, including the mining shares, selling off precipitously in order to get dollars. It's why you've seen the Fed open swap lines as to dollar funding. And I think that while the central banks and the monetary authorities will certainly fight against the dollar getting too strong, it's a battle that I think, at least in the early stages, that they are going to lose. And I think the dollar is going to go much higher. And as a result, I think that has a number of implications for uh, the rest of the world. So, okay, is the, is the, the general premise that money is going to flood and rush into the U.S. dollar uh, after a period of time, then it's going to move into other asset classes, maybe gold or something along that line. So for, for, again, from a big picture standpoint, I think what happens over the next couple of years is that the U.S. dollar gets uh, inflows. People be 
I think on a relative basis, now it doesn't mean that things are good here, but on a relative basis to the rest of the world, I think the U.S. will be seen as, you know, I hate the analogy, the prettiest or the prettiest mare at the slaughter or the cleanest dirty shirt, however you want to say it. Um, it's kind of a silly analogy, but I think it's largely correct. You know, if you're an individual, you can sell and just go sit in cash. If you're an institution or if you're a pension fund or if you're a large mutual fund, you can't just sell everything and go sit in cash. Uh, just, it just doesn't work like that. So you're going to, th those people that are in those positions of decisions are going to make a decision. Where do we allocate our capital? And I believe that on a relative basis, they are going to see the United States as the most likely place to get some return as well as get their money back. And so I think that is where they're going to allocate the majority of their funds. That creates a vicious cycle because as money comes into the dollar, it won't just stay in dollars. It'll go to help fund our huge deficits. Uh, it will go, so it'll go into treasuries. It'll find it. And I think some of it will find its way into the stock market. And I think the U S stock market with all the money that all, all the central banks around the world are going to print, including the fed, the fed will print, the bank of England will print, the ECB will print, the PBOC will print, the bank of Japan will print Brazil, Australia. They're all going to do it. They're going to do MMT. They're going to do fiscal stimulus. But I think what largely happened is that when that money gets printed around the world, it will in very short order get converted to dollars and get sent back to the United States in order to States. I think that lack of capital abroad will create deflationary effects. I think it will push currencies abroad down. And so I think people overseas get put in a really bad position where their currency is depreciating in value, but maybe their costs are going up. So from that perspective, they have some inflation, but they also have deflationary effects because their revenues are going down. So they're getting squeezed from both sides. I think it becomes this vicious cycle where as that happens, people want dollars even more. They want to come to the U.S. even more because it's the one place where they can go to get a little bit of growth. Right. And so what I think we largely have is a blow off top in the United States, um, recession or depressionary effects outside the United States. And then, I don't know, year, two years, three years, it will all reverse. They'll come, um, you know, we've done all these measures to weaken it. It didn't work. They'll come together in some kind of a plaza accord or some kind of an agreement where they write the dollar down or they reverse the flow of dollars. And then I think at that point, everything flips. I think at that point, you want to get out of the United States. You want to go to Australia or Canada or China or Europe or whatever, wherever it is. Um, I'll kind of have to cross that bridge when I get there. Uh, but for right now, uh, I have been allocating and I've been focusing client assets on U.S. markets. Now, mm. when I say this, I've been accused of being, I've been accused of being a jingoistic American. I've been accused of being an ugly American. I've been accused of somebody who thinks uh, in this American exceptionalism. Uh, and I want to be very clear. I don't think any of that. I think the U.S. has made incredible mistakes over the last 50 years. I think that we are going to pay dearly for them. I just don't think we're going to look how much greater we are than the rest of the world. It's not that at all. It's just a knock-on effect of the design of the system. The fact that we have the world's biggest and deepest capital markets, and we have the world's biggest and deepest military to enforce the use of the dollar. Um, I don't like the way it is. Uh, in many ways, I wish the system was different, but it's not. And so my, my job is not to invest for what I would like to see. My job is to look around the world and figure out 
where to place my client capital based on the realities of the world so that we can make a profit. Um, and so, you know, I have not seen anything yet that has led me to believe I need to change that opinion. Now, at some point I'm going to have to, and uh, there, I'm certainly not going to get it all right. There will be parts of what I think that will be wrong. There will be parts of the things that I think will happen sooner than I think. And there will be parts of the things that I think will happen will probably happen later than I think. But I do believe that on a, a large basis, this is how it's going to play out over the next couple of years. So with that thesis in mind, what are the steps you're taking specifically to take advantage of it? Sure. So one of the things that we've done is allocated, uh, well, I should say that, you know, when I speak about these things, I always reserve the right to change my mind. Um, you know, I don't, think any, I don't think anybody should have a fixed mindset. I don't think that this is a time period where you can just set it and forget it. And there'll be tactical moves along the way. I believe that over the next couple of years, uh, that U.S. equity prices are going to go a lot higher. You know, that said, up until a week or 10 days ago, I was hedged on my U.S. equities because I thought we were due for a pullback. And we were. We got a very strong pullback. It's actually pulled back further than I thought it would. So as of now, I'm long U.S. equities. I'm no longer short U.S. equities. Uh, my clients have a number of uh, uh, short to medium term fixed income, American U.S. fixed income. Uh, we have not played the really long uh, duration. You know, I, the you know, treasury rates have gone close to zero. People who were playing the long treasury you know, rally uh, have made a killing. I give them many props for making that call. It was a difficult one to make, but they made it and they, they made a killing doing it. Uh, we've made money, but not as much because we've been on the shorter end of the curve. So we're doing that. Uh, all of my clients have, you know, California real estate, which has a big part of their overall portfolios, and we take that into consideration. Um, that's uh, that's done very well. Um, and you know, we set this fund up uh, a year ago um, to get ready for what's happening. And in many ways, it was set up as a way to be a hedge against the rest of the traditional portfolio, as well as a source of alpha. And then, you know, in that fund, we're doing things like, well, our biggest trade was that we bought short-term options or we bought options on short-term Canadian interest rates being pulled down. We think that uh, Canada, or I'm not sure if I just said Australia or Canada, but I meant Canada. Uh, Canada and Australia are very similar, but in this particular case, I'm talking about Canada. We think that Canada is in enormous trouble. We think that they are going into a, not just a recession, but an extremely bad recession. We thought that uh, a year ago or nine months ago, we thought that the Canadian and uh, central bank would have to cut rates dramatically. It took a little bit longer than we thought it would for them to do it. But in the last couple of weeks, they've cut dramatically. Uh, the options that we had on those Canadian bankers acceptance notes increased uh, several fold. Uh, um, you know, and so that was a very nice return. We've been short uh, the Turkish lira, which has been fantastic. We've been short the Brazilian real. We've been short the Australian dollar. Uh, we've had put options on things like uh, emerging market bonds, um, high yield bonds, because we largely think that this is a global credit event. Now, it doesn't mean that the U.S. won't get hurt. It's just that I think the U.S. Get, gets hurt less than everybody else. So it's a little bit of a relative play, kind of an event-driven play. But and we is think the having US that, is that hedge on the... On, Sorry, I was going to say, and you like, is the U.S. getting hurt pushed out further into the future as well? Would you would you imagine everyone else is going to get injured? Yeah, on so shorter time frame. Well, what, what I th what I think is going to happen is, you know, I, I think the U.S. market is going to recover much quicker than the rest of the world. So, 
uh, again, it doesn't mean the rest of the world. I think Canada has two or three years of immense pain. I think Australia has two or three years of immense pain. I think China is in very, very large danger of not just having a economic downturn, but a political revolution, for lack of a better word. Um, you know, all these chickens are coming home to roost. I don't think that the euro will survive uh, in the current form. Um, you know, this COVID, I, I had listen, I had no idea that this COVID virus was going to ravage the planet. Um, but, but I knew that the, that the situation that the world was in, all it needed was a catalyst in order to tip over. Now, I had no idea that that catalyst would be a virus, but here we are. And so I think what has largely happened is this, the, the, the outbreak of this virus has, um, it's not the cause, but it's an accelerant of what I think was already going to happen. And so yeah, I think it's going to play out maybe potentially quicker than I initially thought. Uh, well, these are, the funny thing is, is in macro land, everything always takes much longer than you think it's going to, to play out. Uh, mm -hmm. But I think it's playing out now and it's playing out, it's, it's playing out extremely fast. You know, you look at equity markets around the world, you know, the U S is down 30%, Europe's down 30%, China's down, China's only down about 20, 25% right now, but Australia is down 30 or 40%. I mean, this is the biggest and fastest sell-off since 19, either 1987 or 1929, whichever one you want to measure it against. Um, it's really bad. I mean, I'm not going to lie. This is, this is a huge crisis, um, but it doesn't mean there's not opportunity. I'm actually very excited. I think the opportunities over the next couple of years are incredible. I think what you do largely depends where you live and what currency you're denominated in. Okay. Um, so then let me pose a, a specific question. So sure. someone like me, a Canadian, uh, I actually yeah. get paid in us dollars. Most Canadians get paid in Canadian dollars. What, you know, I've invested in a lot of mining companies, a lot of gold companies, some general equities. Where should I be focusing my portfolio now to take advantage of what you see coming down the pipeline? Uh, so the first thing I would do is if I was a Canadian and I was getting paid in dollars, I would say a prayer uh, of thanks because that's a very nice position to be in. Um, if I wasn't getting paid in dollars and I was Canadian, I would any savings or extra money I had, I would quickly convert it to U.S. dollars. Um, I think that the US dollar is going to go up tremendously or the dollar fall tremendously against the dollar over the next uh, couple of years. So that would be the first thing. I would definitely own some physical gold. Uh, gold, I think, will do much better in Canadian dollar terms than it will in US dollar terms. Um, I know a number of uh, your listeners, you just mentioned yourself included, and just a number of Canadian Canadians in general have uh, um, traditionally are traditional owners of uh, mining companies. Um, I'm not saying don't own them, but I'm saying if you do own them, please don't do it with your money all the time. Say, you know, this is a three or four year play for me. But then when it's down three or four days later, they're freaking out. So I always kind of wonder why they're freaking out if it's a three or four year play. So be really honest with yourself. It, it, it makes sure it really is a three or four year play um, because you might need it in three or four months. And if you need the money in three or four months, I would not recommend putting it in mining companies. So I think just be very honest with yourself about what role it plays in your portfolio. Um, I do think the big majors and the big producers will actually do better than the juniors right now in the, in the short term. Yeah. Uh, because I think that as we, you know, I think a lot of people say, you know, let's buy the juniors. It has more upside. Yes. But most of the juniors will never find an ounce of gold or will never get an ounce of gold out of the ground. Uh, many of the juniors have not been managed as well as some of the majors. And I think that as we go forward in this credit crisis, I think 
you know, the, the, the mining companies, they're exposed to leverage the same way the rest of the economy is. Um, over the last 10 years, equity to debt financing has gone from 50 to 50 to 10 to one um, as far as the way um, mining companies have financed themselves. And if we get into a period where the price of gold does not continue to rise like it has over the last 12 months, um, and they have to, um, and their cost of borrowing has gone up or their access to borrowing has gone up because of this credit squeeze. Uh, I think a number of uh, mining companies can still come under pressure. And uh, that doesn't mean that they're all going to go bankrupt. It doesn't mean that you own how you own it, the debt levels that they have, um, that kind of thing. So I would, I would, I, I would focus more on the big, the big majors rather than the juniors at this point. Yeah. So, I mean, I can speak from my experience. What I've done over the last week <clears throat> is I sold off a lot of the juniors that I hold, held that I thought were performing mediocrely in general. And I put that money into uh, streaming and royalty companies uh, particularly. And at this point, I like the streamers and royalty companies better than the majors because they have a lot less risk of... Um, you know, supply chain malfunction of closures of, of, of basically the mines or streams getting shut down, right? Because when a major has a mine that gets shut down, there's still a tremendous amount of costs uh, associated with keeping that on care and maintenance, keeping uh, employees around, keeping it from imploding. Whereas if a royalty company stream shuts down, you know, they're not making any money, but they're not losing yeah. any money either. That's right. So I, if you're going right. to be Yep. in mining companies right now and you're thinking about deploying capital into that space and this week in particular and i don't know what it's going to be next week but i think uh it's hard to beat the streaming royalty companies especially because many of them are down by 30 40 50 percent yeah. right now sure uh the other thing i would say that you you, you kind of need to think about and this is this has always been the case in, in the mining world so it's nothing new but i think it's particularly timing and that is you know, a lot of times when you invest in a gold mine, the gold mine is in Africa or South America or Australia or the Philippines or wherever it is, right? The, you know, typically all over the world. Um, be very careful about the political jurisdiction that you're investing in and the economic situation of the political jurisdiction you're investing in because I think that this global scramble for dollars is going to last for a while. And it's not just uh, companies that need access to dollars, but countries need access to dollars too. So if I'm a government uh, who is scrambling for dollars because I need dollars to either finance my government or operations or fund the banks or whatever it is, and I'm looking around at who I can tax to get it, I probably will look at the industry that's making money in dollars to get those dollars. Um, and so it would not shock me at all to see different countries start I don't, I, a tax. Maybe that's not the right way to say it, uh, but perhaps expropriate some of the mining companies because the mining companies have access to dollars because their product gets sold in dollars. Maybe you will see some countries who are under pressure nationalize gold mines in yeah. order to get access to that. So again, I'm not I'm not making predictions that this is all going to happen. I think it will happen to some extent. I just think it's something that you need to be aware of. I don't think it's something that you can ignore. And I know, I know that, again, this is not, not something new. It's something always to consider. But I think it's particularly timely to consider now. Yeah. I mean, resource nationalism, it's always an issue. But, you know, when I look at what's going on right now, coronavirus, um, to me, this feels like a, a watershed moment in a, in a, in a way insofar that I don't think the world is going to be the same after this as it was before this. And I mean, we saw this, 
what comes to my mind is 9-11. 9-11 was there was before and there was after. And even as a Canadian in high school at the time, I, you know, I, I noticed the difference, the big change in the world. And I think we're going to see a similar watershed here. But, you know, I, I don't know exactly what it's going to look like in six months or 12 months from now. Do you have a feel for the way you view the world changing or are you in the dark on that? Um, well, no. I mean, I think without walking too far down the, you know, conspiratorial path, you know, just from a practical matter, typically when something like this happens, governments use it as an opportunity to um, enhance their power, not diminish their power, right? Whether that's forms of social control or whether it's forms of um, resource management or whether it's a form of, you know, tax, whatever it is, they typically um, introduce new legislation because we need to deal with this now. It's an emergency. And I think to your point, there will be before COVID and after COVID. Um, I would, I would, again, without getting into too much detail, I would bet against there being less restrictions <laughs> as opposed to having more restrictions. I think more restrictions is pretty much a given. Uh, again, I don't like it. Um, I, and in many ways, I think the response to this outbreak is in many ways more harmful than the outbreak itself. Um, that said, I'm not going to win that argument. So mm -hmm. what I've got, I've, what I've got to do is analyze the situation and figure out how to uh, react accordingly. You know, it's interesting you say that because I literally just got off the phone before this with uh, Rob McEwen, the CEO of McEwen Mining, and he said the exact same thing, something on the order of, you know, it's sometimes it's the cure that kills the patient, and yep. that's what, what we might be suffering here with this. Yeah. This. Uh, I wish I could have a way to express this more eloquently, but this media Twitter machine that has taken this thing and yep. spun it into a big ball uh, that seems to have gained a, a mind of its own and is just growing and growing and growing every day. Well, I mean, here's again, whether you agree with the way it should be, this is the way it is. And the, the reality is politicians are always going to be reactionary. They are going to see the crisis and they are going to react to it. And then they're going to say, see what I did? I helped this or I solved this or I acted quickly. It doesn't help them to do nothing and have the situation get better. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying I'm, I'm not necessarily saying the situation would get better without their help. But my point is, is whether it's a crisis or whether it's not a crisis. And listen, I, I think that this is a crisis, but whether you think it is a crisis or it's not a crisis, it goes back to that original quote. Don't let a good crisis go to waste, you know? Yeah. Act, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and politicians are not going to let a good crisis go to waste. They're just not. And so I think that's how you got to think of it. Everyone's kind of looking for their chance to be the hero here. Yeah. So, yeah. So do you Here, think I, I will I will throw out one little thing to think about um, because it, when I when I tell people about my ideas of how this is all going to develop and I, I've I've coined the term the dollar milkshake because I think we're going to suck up uh, you know all the stimulus that the rest of the world is printing. Um, the biggest challenge I get to it is people. Many people will say, "Okay, I can see how the dollar gets strong. I can see how these other countries come under pressure, but I just don't see U.S. equities going higher." Well, I guess I would say there, there's a couple things here. Uh, I'm not being Pollyannish, and I'm not saying 
things are going to rebound quickly and we're going to be back to a booming economy in a couple of months. But right now, all the projections that are out there are projecting a depression, not a recession, a depression. Um, there is no velocity of money right now because you can't even go to restaurants. Like there's, you know, Italy is completely shut down. The U.S. is very close to being shut down. Um, it'll probably be throughout the rest of Europe before the end of the weekend. Uh, maybe the same in Canada. My point is, is that if and when this ever stops and we, we do get back to acting somewhat normally and money does start to flow again, especially in the U.S., I think it, you will see equities rise not because things are necessarily getting better but because i think while this last mining companies not just mine sorry not mining companies just companies in general i would use this as an opportunity to throw out every bad thing i've ever done write it down get <laughs> it over with blame 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 it on covid whether it was covid's fault or not i would blame when things get just a little bit better, because right now things are priced for Armageddon or we're getting close to priced to Armageddon. So if things just get really bad, but they don't blow up, price can actually rise. And with the rise of passive investing, and what I mean with passive investing, you know, a friend of mine has done an incredible amount of work on this and I don't want to steal his thunder, but he, he, he has shown that We've, we've, the market has become basically the simplest algorithm in history. If you need cash, you sell. And if there's cash in the account, you buy. Simple as that. And if we get to a point where markets are no longer falling and nobody is no longer saying sell, now you've got cash in the account. And what do you do? If there's cash, you buy. And as things go higher and there's cash in the account, you buy more. And then you buy more and it becomes this reflexive thing. Um, and I, so I, 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 and if you start to look around the world and you see more and more governments failing, if you see the U.S. not handling it particularly well, if you see a lot of infighting between the Democrats and the, you know, the Republicans, you get closer to the election and it looks like, what would you rather own? Would you rather own Coca-Cola or, you know, a government bond, you know? And again, I'm not saying that we're not going to be able to finance our treasuries, but I'm just saying if I had to choose, I'd rather own Philip Morris. I'd rather own Coca-Cola. I'd rather own, you know, a big infrastructure company or Raytheon or anything like that. And so, you know, when you combine all these things with number one, the world not ending, number two, things getting a little bit better. Number three, all the bad stuff has been written down. And number four, this simple algorithm that says if there's cash, you buy. I can see how the, the U.S. equities can rise again. So, um, and if I was Canadian, I wouldn't be buying Canadian assets and maybe not Canadian equities, but I'd probably be buying the Dow because then you get the currency appreciation, you get the dividend that they're paying. Think of it this way. If, if Coca-Cola is paying a three or 4% dividend mm -hmm. and, the, and the Canadian dollar loses five or 6% versus the dollar, that's a 10% return even if the stock doesn't go anywhere, right? And if the stock goes up five, six percent, now you've got a you've got a sixteen percent return. That sounds pretty good right now, right? So I think I think that's kind of the stuff I'd be thinking about if I was uh, not an American. All right. Well, Brent, I think we're coming up on time now. Um, is there 
Anything else that you'd like to leave listeners or investors with that you think that they need to be thinking about uh, today? You know, I think I would just come back to something I said earlier. The, the most important consideration is your currency. What's your currency going to do? And if you have an opportunity to put your money in something that's going to appreciate, don't just think about the asset appreciating. Think about it appreciating versus your currency. I think it's also important to think about the, the U.S. dollar is a horrible, horrible currency but which fiat currency is better than it? And I know everybody will say gold. I know everybody likes gold and that's fine, own gold, but don't have 100% of your portfolio in gold. So after mm -hmm. you've bought your 15%, your 20%, your 40%, whatever it is, even if you bought 50%, the rest of your portfolio, the other 50%, what fiat, you know, if you don't want it in gold, you don't wanna have it all in gold, where else are you gonna go? Uh, I wouldn't hold Canadian dollars. I wouldn't hold Australian dollars. I wouldn't hold euros. I wouldn't hold yuan. I'd probably be looking to hold dollars. And if I can get a return in those dollars by also putting it into the Dow or the treasury or whatever it is, I think that's not a bad idea. All right. Uh, and Brent, if people want to hear more about your work and what you're doing, what's the best place to check that out? You know, I'm pretty active on Twitter. It's Santiago, or it's, it's at Santiago AU Fund. Um, you can f email me, brent at santiagocapital.com. Uh, I'm on a number of different uh, podcasts from time to time. I appreciate you having me on here. Uh, I'm on places like Real Vision and Macro Voices, and I've done um, stuff with John Kutsumita and uh, a number of different people. So um, if I think if you just Google it, you'll probably find some stuff. All right. Thank you very much. Thank you and uh, happy to come back anytime. Take care.